Jaron Cacofferi tells you that the Power of Free podcast is back. I'm Kenny Smith and I'm here with episode 108 of the podcast that loves to celebrate Doctor Who in all of its forms, whether on TV, audio, books, animations, underpants or anything else. We like to discuss, dissect, discourse, disagree, digress as we look through the universes of Doctor Who and today we're taking a trip back summer of 1991. It's the 20th of June, it's the day after my 17th birthday, and Virgin Publishing has just released the first of its much-heralded New Adventures novels, featuring the seventh Doctor and Ace picking up from where we left them at the end of Survival on the TV screen. Kicking off a four-story arc comprising Time Worm Genesis, spelt with a Y, Exodus, Apocalypse and Revelation was a four-story set with the books being released every two months initially, and the writer for this first original Doctor Who story, apart from comic strips, was John Peel, not to be confused with the former Radio 1 DJ of the same name. According to the back cover of the book, Mesopotamia, the cradle of civilization. In the fertile crescent of land on the banks of the rivers Tigris and Euphrates, mankind is turning from hunter-gatherer into farmer, and from farmer into city-dweller. Gilgamesh, the first hero king, rules the city of Uruk. An equally legendary figure arrives in a police telephone box. The TARDIS has brought the Doctor and his companion Ace to witness the first steps of mankind's long progress to the stars. And from somewhere, amid those distant points of light, an evil sentience has tumbled. To her followers in the city of Kish, she is known as Ishtar the Goddess. To the Doctor's forebears on ancient Gallifrey, she was a mythical terror, the Time Worm. So, so, here's how a whole new era of Doctor Who began, brought to life for you with some sound design. Now, there was no time to enjoy herself. 
in moments she, too, might be dead. She slipped into the mind of the navigator. He was still almost home and began the scans that she had ordered. This far out from the hub of Mutter's spiral, there were very few possible havens for her. The figures scrolled upwards. Only one planet that could sustain humanoid life in the small sun system ahead of them. Not that she needed such an environment to live in, but her slaves would. The other worlds showed up as totally unsuitable for her purposes. No life of any kind. As for the third planet, she cursed the results. Life, yes, but no intelligence. No radio waves, no radioactivity, no sign of industrialization. Useless, completely useless. The captain's panicked thoughts broke through her waves of fury and she burrowed into his mind. He was once again becoming frantic with fear as their attacker swung about to begin the final assault, the barrage that they could never survive. She forced herself to become calm. Well, this third world would have to do. Without technology, she would be trapped there. But if there was life, then she could feed and survive. In time, what she needed might become available if she managed to escape this attack. Enclosed within her life pod, she started the launch sequence. But she would need to camouflage her escape. If they knew she was bailing out, the others would hunt her down. She had to do this very carefully indeed. She reinforced her grip on the navigator's mind and made him change the ship's heading. Dropping the remaining useless shields, she had the hands she controlled start the overload sequence on the reactor core. The countdown began. Her thought turned to the captain and she made him manoeuvre the ship about. Then she triggered the drive units and propelled her dying ship directly into the path of the oncoming aggressor. Taste this, she screamed mentally in defiance at her old foes. One of her slender talons hovered over the trigger. There was just one final act to perform. The last 11 crew members were barely clinging to their foolish lives. Well, there was something that they could do for her. They could die. She sent the command, feeding off their final energies, feeling her mind grow slightly stronger from each death. There was no time to savour the feasting, so she was forced to rush. She had no idea when she might be able to feed again. When they were dead, she hit the release. Space surrounded her. She barely had time to register the bulk of her tattered ship rushing past her before it exploded. Showering slivers of debris across her field of vision. The explosion would have blanked her attacker's sensors long enough for them to have missed her escape. She switched from drive to standard, slipping back into normal space-time. The wreckage faded from about her tiny craft. With luck, the blast would have damaged the attacking ship. The third planet hung below her. It was half-lit by the light of its sun and gleamed blue and white. It was almost like home. She began a closer scan and cursed as each of the indications confirmed what she had read from the main ship. No concentrations of electromagnetic power, no emissions of exhaust gases, no transport systems. No communication signals. Whatever life was here was so primitive as to be totally useless to her. She needed intelligence, not simply animal life. She couldn't feed from uncomprehending beasts. Without minds to plunder, she would die. That pretty little globe below would become her tomb. Abruptly, an alarm sounded. Glancing at the screens ahead, she saw that the pod had been damaged. She had left her escape too late. The thrusters were almost empty of fuel, and she was losing control of the small vessel. Gravity was pulling her into the planet's embrace. She found herself enjoying the irony of this situation. Having escaped and taken control of the starship and fled across space, she was going to die in this barren, lifeless wasteland. It would all end here. Was it better to die in the flames of planetary entry or later, alone and starving for the only food she could eat? After all of her efforts to die like this, in solitude, in this wretched spot, this wasteland planet of blue and white and green. And that's how the new adventures began. So let's cross the Atlantic and speak with John Peel. And I do apologise in advance 
as his lovebirds reacted whenever he spoke, so effectively we had our very own live tweet along. Yeah, I can hear their groans from here. Anyway, moving swiftly along, here's the author. Hi, I'm John Peel, and among other things, I wrote the first original Doctor Who novel, authorised, Time Worm Genesis. John, welcome to The Power of Three. It's a delight to have a wee chat with you. Yes, nice to be here. Thank you. I suppose it's fair to say that, as Doctor Who fans go, you've certainly got a bit of a pedigree having been there at the birth of organised British fandom, really, in the 70s. Yes, I guess so. Um, I never intended to be, but that's how it worked out, yes. The Doctor Appreciation Society had just started up and they had decided they would like more members of it a little bit further out. It's mostly it had been organised in London and uh, they advertised in some science fiction magazine that I happened to have bought and I saw the advertisement and with a friend of mine, Steve Evans, uh, we, we decided, well, this might be a nice club to join, um, especially since Doctor Who had really been revitalized uh, at this point, and it was going very, very well. So we, it was actually one of the very few fan clubs I actually joined, and I have a, had a great time with it, really. But of course, by the time you came to do Genesis, you'd, you'd written quite a few things by this point, hadn't you? When I joined the fan club, I hadn't really done anything very much. Um, Steve Evans and I used to meet on every Saturday and we would sit in his room and write stories, mostly separately. I mean, we didn't write together as very much. Um, and then we'd read each other's stories. And that was pretty much all we'd done at that point. And when we joined the Dwarfs, we discovered that there was the, um, the fan publications, um, mostly TARDIS and um, Celestial Toy Room, which was the newsletter. And they had printed a couple of short stories that we read, and they were pretty bad. They were, they were not very good stories. And I'm, I'm terribly opinionated about things like this. So I wrote to the editor and said, can't you do any better? And he wrote back to me and said, can you? <laughs> which was the challenge. So Steve and I spent the next couple of weeks writing Doctor Who stories. And we sent them off to Gordon Blows, who was the editor at that point. And Gordon loved them, uh, which was very encouraging, of course, and decided he wanted to put out a special publication, uh, which he called Cosmic Mask. And it was just it just contained stories by Steve and myself. And um, that was very, you know, very encouraging. We liked that. So Gordon decided that what was needed was a special writers group where we could encourage other writers to write Doctor Who stories and, you know, help improve their writing as well. And we we did this and um, started doing Cosmic Mask on a fairly regular basis. At which point Steve decided he'd had enough and left. <laughs> which is one of the things, so I was left with it all by myself. But it was good. I mean, we, we had some good writers, some of which have gone on to um, to write professionally, which was nice. And uh, we, we had a grand time doing Cosmic Mask, so it, it was a huge amount of fun for me. But that ended, of course, when I moved to the, um, the United States. But it's still ongoing, which is Again, it, it's really nice to see that, that people still feel that it's a valuable publication and something worthwhile. So you were in the States when you got the commission oh. for Genesis? Yes. It was one of those situations where um, I, I had pushed very hard. I mean, by this point, I'd already written my first novelizations for Target, so they knew who I was and you know, how reliable I was at writing and that kind of thing, which is always very important to an editor, of course. And um, I, I was really, because I was, I mean, I may have been a professional writer at that point, but I was still a fan. And the idea of writing the first authorized Doctor Who novel 
was just too much of a pull for me. I mean, I really, really lobbied to get the job with um, with Peter Darvel Evans, who was the editor at that point. And it was it was interesting because, of course, everybody else involved in the project was in England, and I'm the only one left over in New York. And this was, of course, the pre-internet days. We we didn't have email. We didn't have uh, the internet. We had nothing. We, we basically communicated via the phone, letters, which took a week, of course, and occasionally, if it was necessary, faxes. <laughs> but it was difficult for me to fax because, I mean, back in those days, we really didn't have home faxes. We had to go through a business to do it. So it, it was a very complicated process of doing things and time consuming. So it was um, a, an interesting time, shall we say? <laughs> yeah. And, so, uh, yeah. Let's say I, I pushed very hard to become the writer of the first book, and in the end, I guess Peter gave him to my persistence. <laughs> <laughs> was there much in the way of guidelines, or did you help play a part in you know, helping to shape who and what the title well, what was? Yeah, what happened was that um, Peter had decided, you know, had come up with the concept of the time plan, and he was interested in doing a four-book series to sort of kick off the whole series. And the way it would be handled would be that um, all four of the writers would have to write at the same time, so that they, he had the manuscripts coming in on time for publication. Because, I mean, obviously, it's really, really important at this point that the books be on time, um, especially since they were doing as as a series. So he, he had it all arranged for that. And um, he had the basic concept. I mean, he knew that he wanted the time worm to be a creature out of Gallifreyan myth, so to speak, made real. But he hadn't got much more than that in mind with it. So what happened was that I had to, I was it was left to me to fill in the details, and my immediate task was to sit down, write a background to the time worm, and what I saw as my story, you know, my part of the story, and then this would be passed on to the other three writers, who would obviously work from that. What happened was, I originally came up, as I said, this was back in the early days of computing even, and I came up with the idea of a planet ruled by the time worm, where everybody, all the people basically were floppy disks on in a computer system, that, you know, that the... the um, there, were, there was some talk, of course, at the time of, you know, people only use 10% of their brain. So I thought, well, what if the time worm is using the other 90% and they don't know it? So I had come up with this concept of like a, a, a world web, but the web is run by the spider who's the time worm. And I sent this, I wrote this down, very excited, and sent it off to Peter, who called me and said, ah, John, did I forget to mention I wanted to have Mesopotamians in this? <laughs> it was like, uh, yes, you did. <laughs> so then um, he said, no, no. Uh, do you know anything about Gilgamesh? And of course, being the kind of idiot that I am, I mean, I reached up on the shelf and said, here's my copy of you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, I, I should add, of course, that the reason I had a copy of Gilgamesh in the first place was Doctor Who. I had fallen in love with the historical stories on Doctor Who, and that had given me a love for history. So I'd done a lot of historical reading on my own time because I, I found ancient civilizations to be as fascinating as alien civilizations. The way they thought, the way they acted, the way they responded to things was alien from our point of view. So it, it was, to me, you know, Doctor Who had introduced me to, to um, history as a fascinating subject. So it was only as a result of actually watching Doctor Who that I, actually, I had the, re, you know, the reference materials for Gilgamesh. So we, we talked about this a little bit, and then, of course, I had to rewrite the entire concept overnight, completely changing the whole plot, 
now that we would establish as being in um, in the Gilgamesh period. So I had to come up with a completely new plot overnight, which I then sent off to Peter, Peter approved. And then that meant I had to write up the outline again, make it a little different, and you know send it to him so he could um, distribute it to the other writers who I didn't know at the time. I had no idea who they were, but of course it was Terence, uh, Nigel Robinson, and, um, and Paul Cornell. So they needed my outline. They needed to know what I was going to be doing so that they could figure out what they were going to do with it um, as their ongoing part. So what I wrote in the end was something like a 20-page synopsis plus my first chapter so that they could see what I was doing with the character and how I was using it and send it off to them. Of course, things changed a bit because what happened, I originally, for example, um, I had the time worm uh, because I'd come up with the idea of this planet that where they were linked like a web. I had the time worm as a, a, a giant cybernetic spider. And then I thought, after I'd written this, I just thought, wait a minute, that makes no sense. It's called Time Worm, not Time Spider. So I changed it to, um, you know, obviously to the snake form instead. But we had to tell everybody, oh, sorry, no, John's changed it. It's no longer a spider, it's a serpent, um, which was quite funny, but other than that. You know, so it, it, we, we were feeling our way, really. We, we really didn't know what we were doing at first, but then it became a lot clearer to us, a lot firmer. Um, and I wrote my book, and Terence was writing his, and Nigel and Paul were writing theirs, but I, I didn't see what any of them were doing. They saw what I was doing, because I would have to send my material in. Um, because mine was going to be the first book. So they would see some of my material, but I never saw a, a thing of what they wrote. I had no idea until the yeah. books came out. Um, so I, I, I was left to discover later what they were doing with my character, effectively, um, which was fun. Yeah. I'm most amused by the idea you came up with this thing for World Wide Web. I mean, as if that would ever catch on, John. It, it was just weird. I mean, I have no idea. Maybe there was something uh, mentioned at that point or whatever, and it was just sticking in the back of my mouth. But you could tell how old it was because I was using floppy disks as, as the concept, you know. Um, and I mean, nobody nowadays probably knows what a floppy disk is. So, uh, yeah. but yeah, yeah, we were feeling our way. I mean, obviously, there had never been any new Doctor Who material except I mean except for the short comic strip things there'd really not been anything on this kind of scale before so we, we were actually just kind of hesitantly feeling our way um, and I would I, I kept calling Peter asking him stupid questions um, and he would try and find the answers for me which was which is kind of interesting for example I mean one of the questions I asked was I hadn't seen a lot of uh, Sylvester's shows by that point because they were coming here intermittently and depending on the area of what you saw. So I'd seen probably a third to a half of his stories and I really hadn't quite gotten a handle on Ace. So I sent a list of questions about Ace to him and he didn't know. I, I said, you know, we know that her, her, her mother was alive at the start of the you know, her series, basically. But what about her father? And Peter had no clue. I mean, he did said like, oh, I don't know. Uh, so he sent all the, all the questions over to Jane, uh, John A. Turner. And I got a very bizarre bunch of answers which didn't address any of the questions. <laughs> So I, I thought, okay, I'll make it up as I go along kind of thing, which is all you can do in that case. So I got a few of the details wrong as it happened because there, there, had, been, there had been some hints of stories that I hadn't seen, um, which I obviously didn't know about. Um, but, you know, 
we were feeling our way really. None of us knew quite what we were, what we were going to end up doing. Yeah. And Peter was Peter knew what he wanted. I mean, what his his brief perspective was to write um, more adult Doctor Who. Um, adult, not necessarily in the sexual sense, but you know, more adult in the sense that it would actually they could be more complicated. The, the plots could be more um, relevantly, you know, adult rather than just an adventure story aimed at children kind of thing. And he, he was very keen on doing that. He was very keen on bringing in science fiction readers who might not know what Doctor Who was even or at least may only have had a very vague idea about it and not really watched it. So he was very keen on doing this. He was, he was keen on getting the science fiction read of this. And that led to some interesting questions. I mean, once he told me he wanted Gilgamesh, my immediate response was, well, how much Gilgamesh? Because when you read the book of Gilgamesh, the, the original epic, He's a bit of a bastard. I mean, he's not a nice guy. I mean, he's a hero, but he's not really what we would consider a hero. He was what was considered a hero in 3000 BC, which was um, a very, very different concept. And as a result of which, I sort of said, well, look, you know, in the original story, he was accused of raping dozens of women. I mean, how much can I include of this? In the, in the thing. We don't want to give a false impression of the original myth or anything, and I'm not really keen on cleaning it up, if you like. So uh, Peter's response was, well, use your judgment, John. No gratuitous sex unless it's called for. <laughs> Which was about the only thing you said on the subject. So it was all left to me what I did with things and how far I went with whatever. We were, we were feeling, our, as I say, we were feeling our way. We really didn't know how far we could go or what we could do or, you know, what the BBC would even be comfortable with, we, I mean, because they did own the copyright after all. So it, 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 was, a, it was exploration for all of us. And I think, in fact, created a very memorable character in the time worm with Ishtar and the fact she's a very powerful, I mean, quite ahead of her time, given that, that we didn't really have that many female villains in Doctor Who by that point, and we had this very powerful woman who, when she incorporates the jettison bits of the TARDIS into her as well, it right. gives her an extra bit of power to it. It's quite a, quite a terrifying concept, the whole time worm notion. Well, that was, that was the idea. I mean, we, we wanted a really powerful villain, and um, we, we wanted a... Peter was kind of, if you like, writing his own season, like he was the producer producing the next season of Doctor Who. And that's the way he saw it, you know, that he was creating Doctor Who, the next stage of Doctor Who. Um, because, of course, at, the, at that point, there was no chance of coming back. And the BBC basically was, was winding it down. So he had pretty much full independent control in that he could do almost everything he wanted with the, with the story because he knew there was very little chance of it ever being contradicted at that point at least that was the way it looked it looked like Doctor Who was dead and we were just carrying it on so um, he was trying to create like a new season um, a new direction for the Doctor and um, the first four books especially were, were very experimental. I mean, we were trying all kinds of different things that couldn't really be done on the show. And, um, I mean, I, I love the idea of the time work. Once, you know, when he told me about his idea, I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is a character you can really get grips with. So, I had a ball with it. Um, it, it, it was just so much fun. <laughs> Did you feel any pressure knowing that it was the first original novel and there would be an awful lot of fan attention on it? Ah, well, that, that leads to a funny story. Um, when I met uh, Terence Dix, I, um, I, I said to him, look, you know, really, you should have been the person who wrote the first book, uh, even though I pushed my way in. 
did, did you ever feel bad about that? That you know that you you hadn't written the first one? And he said, Oh no, John, not at all. I was relieved. He said because I knew what the fans were like, and he said I knew they would jump on the first book and complain bitterly. I was happy to do the second because they could all then say, oh, look, this is much better than the first one. So, um, you know, we had a good smile and a joke about it. But, but yes, being the first book in this and being the first in a new direction, there was a lot of pressure on us. And Peter and I were in constant communication the whole time because we had to keep working ideas out. Every time I came up with something new, I would have to call him and say, is it okay if I do this? Can we get away with this? Almost inevitably, he would say, let's try it. He he was great for that. I mean, his answer for everything was pretty much, let's try it, let's see. And if it works, we'll keep it. If it doesn't, we'll do something else. So Peter was really, really good at being, you know, backing the right. If you wanted to do something badly enough, he would do his best to make sure you could do it. So as a result of which, I, I threw all kinds of wild ideas into time work. Uh, I mean, the, the, the opening concept was the idea that the doctor is clearing out his memories. Because over you know a thousand years, you work with a lot of memories you probably weren't needing them. I mean, it just struck me that that was a possibility. The, the idea I came up with later in the book, that all of the previous incarnations of the Doctor are still somewhere in the back of his brain. That the, I mean, it's part of his character. So he can, if you like, channel one of the previous incarnations. I mean, that was just something, uh, we, were, we were making it up as we went along, but it sounded like something that would, would be possible. So we would do this kind of thing, and it was great. Peter was very encouraging about experimenting, um, as obviously Kate, you, know, you, you saw later on in the series, where the books got more and more experimental. Peter really encouraged, you know, out, out of the box thinking, if you like. So you know, we, we were having a blast. Well, I was having a blast. I mean, I don't know what the others were doing, because as I say, I was in New York, and everybody else was in London, or at least in England. So, I mean, I was completely out of the loop for 90% of the work. <laughs> Did you have anybody in mind when you were writing the book? Because I very much felt Brian Blessed as Gilgamesh. Yes, so did I, actually. That was who I had in mind when I was writing it. Um, because Gilgamesh, as a hero, is a bit of an idiot. I mean, he, he means well and everything, but he's... There are no constraints on him because back in those days, I mean, when you were a ruler, you were a ruler, and everybody had to do what you said. As a result of which, uh, he came over to me as someone who was bombastic and loud. And of course, when you think bombastic and loud, you you almost automatically go to Brian Blessed. So yes, while I was writing it, Brian was in my mind. He was the only part, if you like, I cast. All of the other characters were characters, but Gilgamesh to me was Brian Blessed playing Gilgamesh. Uh, yes, very, very much so. <laughs> yeah. Talking of Gilgamesh, it was, you must have been quite pleased when you got a, a nice wee intro for the book from Sophie Aldred when she talks about her memories of Gilgamesh at school. Um, Sophie, yes. What, what happened was Peter said to me, can we get someone to give us a little introduction to the book thing? Do you know any of the actors or whatever? And he asked me when I was actually going to a convention in Chicago and um, both Sylvester and Sophie were going to be there. So I said, well, I could always ask Sophie and Sylvester, um, one or the other. Do you have a preference? And he said, no, no, um, either of them would be wonderful. So I said, um, so I said well, okay, uh, I'll, I'll ask Sophie. And he said, okay, why Sophie? And I said, because she's cuter. You know, <laughs> and, and, you know, it's cheap to laugh. But it's true. I mean, 
I've met Sylvester and Sophie so many times over the years, and they're two of the nicest possible people. Um, and when I asked Sophie would, would she write the introduction, she was thrilled. I mean, she was, yeah, of course. So, I mean, she's an absolute sweetheart. So it was really nice. It was very kind of her. And I, you know, I really loved it. Um, although I didn't actually see the introduction until the book was published because she said it didn't, of course. How did you find the whole process of, between working on, for example, Terry Nation scripts for The Chase and Dalek Masterplan and adapting them as novelizations to flying solo and having your own thing to do? It's freeing but scary, of course, because um, when you're adapting uh, existing stories, you've got it all planned out and everything, it's all there. You can sit down with the scripts and read them through and say, okay, well, this is what I'm going to be doing, this is how, and whatever. Because you've got it all laid out. When I'm writing it myself, I have a kind of, the way I write my stories is, is I usually do an outline, a fairly loose outline. And I always describe it as like taking a road trip. You've got a map, so you know you're going from A to B, and you know you're taking this road and that road and whatever. But you're not actually seeing it until you're there. You don't see those roads. You, you just know where you're going. And there may be something interesting that diverts your attention, and you decide, oh, I'll go, instead of going to this way, if I go this way, there's something interesting to look at on the way. Uh, so, you know, I, I have a road map of where I'm going. It's always good to know where you actually intend to end up and everything. So I knew the outline, broad outline, but I didn't know the exact details. As I said, for example, I changed the, um, the timeline from the giant spider to a giant snake. That happened partway through the story when I realized I knew it was silly not to. Uh, so, you know, th these things happen, and as you're writing characters especially, you discover that the characters get their own kind of life. You know, they come to life for you as a writer, and all of a sudden you go, I like this character, let's keep them in, you know, even though they weren't in the outline necessarily, or may have just been um, somebody comes in with a message, and then you you feel like, well, I would give them a bit more to do than that. That's not much. And then they build the character up. And then all of a sudden, you're kind of like, oh, I don't want to lose this character. It's too interesting. So things can change as you go along. And it, it certainly did with time. Uh, a lot of the ideas I came up with just simply came to me as I was writing. Um, I was thinking, oh, wait a minute, this character will help because I need something to occur in another four chapters. This character can help me do that. So this, this is the sort of way I wrote with it. Whereas, of course, when you're writing um, from a, a script, when you're novelizing, you, you've got to basically stick to that script. You can add bits and pieces, but, you know, you've got the you know, plot and a lot of the dialogue already there, so you, you've got that set. You don't have the freedom to just go, oh, let's have a look over here. What's this? What's going on here? So, yeah, but of course it's scary because you don't have to rely on anybody else making sense. You've got to make the sense yourself. So the plot has to hold together. And that for me is always very important. The story must hold together. That's that a unifying uh, completeness about it. Yeah. So it, 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 it was a... When I wrote Time Worm, it, it was at a time that I was actually starting to do my own original novels. And um, as a result of which, I, I, I was working on other projects at the same time uh, as Time Worm. Although, I mean, I wasn't writing anything while I was writing Time Worm. It was Time Worm focused, you know, get on that. But at the same time, I was doing outlines for other projects and things. Um, so. Uh, it, it, it was um, a very creative period in my life. That was, that was when I was really branching out. And time was, was pretty much near the start of it. 
course, you had, um, after the book was published, there was that story in the news of the world. That must have been a wee bit of a surprise when you heard about that. There was a story about sort of saying Doctor Who Air, with um, sort of a bit of Who Air with the, with the nudity and yes. sort of things in it, and uh, typical news of the it, world it, going over the top. Yes, yes, that's right, yeah. It kind of surprised me, to be honest, because it is say, I really, I wasn't really, put, I was pushing the boundaries of Doctor Who a little, but not really a lot. And when this world came out with us, I was quite surprised. Um, Peter's reaction, of course, was, it's publicity, we love it, don't worry. Which is true. I mean, you know, the one thing you can guarantee is if somebody tells people that what you've written is horribly, um, you know, sexy or whatever, it guarantees people will go out and buy the book because, you know, they want to know what the fuss is all about. But it, it hadn't really occurred to me. Certainly, when I was writing it, um, it was that was it was a fan reaction, really. Um, but then got into the news of the world, of course, and it, it really surprised me because I, I didn't think I was doing very, you know, very much controversial um, at all. And um, I mean, the, 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 the whole reason for the example, uh, for example, the, the bit where Ace wakes up naked and everything, it, it, there's nothing to it. She's just, I mean, okay, Ace sleeps in the nude, big deal. You know, I mean, it didn't occur to me that that was any problem. And I wanted her to be naked to begin with because the doctor has also has basically stripped her memories. So her mind is naked as well as her body. And I, I was just trying to do, draw the parallel. For me, you know, getting her, when she gets dressed is the equivalent of a, a bit of fore, you know, foreshadowing of her going out and getting her memories back. And that was all I saw in it. The, the prostitute, however, was deliberate. Um, I wanted to put the 12-year-old prostitute in because I like to remind people that things that happened in the past were very different from things today. And the fact that a 12-year-old having sex today would be considered highly immoral is not something that's always been historically true. I mean, it, it is in our society and for very good reasons. But back then, if you were 12 year old, you should be having children because they only lived to be about 30. So, I mean, for, for the, that period, people were having sex a lot earlier. And I wanted to shake people up with this and say, look, our world, our way of doing things isn't always the way other people see it and isn't how other people do it. And um, uh, I, I also, I mean, I did other things to, to stress this as well, like when Ace is in um, Gilgamesh's palace and she realizes that the lifestyle that Gilgamesh has is actually no better than the lifestyle she had in contemporary London. And in fact, that she had a lot of conveniences in contemporary London that Gilgamesh, as a king back then, couldn't have. Um, so, you know, I, I was trying to make people think about that. So, the, the, you know, that was a deliberate choice. And uh, of course, that was what the, the um, news of the world focused on, because it was the more sensational one, and that's what they wanted, you know. <laughs> but I, I was rather surprised by the re reaction. Of course, the later books got um, got uh, a pass on the sex and things in those, uh, much more so than I did. Um, but as I say, I was just dipping my toe in the water, so to speak. So how do you look back on it now, John? Is it one that you're proud of, the fact that you did launch pretty much what's become an entire Doctor Who industry in its own right of original fiction? Yeah, well, uh, I, I'm very happy. Uh, I, was, I mean, as I say, I'm not only a professional writer, I'm also a Doctor Who fan. So I always enjoy writing anything to do with Doctor Who. And I'm tremendously grateful to Peter for giving me the opportunity to be the first. Um, it meant a huge amount to me. And it still does. I mean, it was something very special in my writing career. 
it was a definite point in my career that I could say, look, this is something I'm very proud of doing, being the first original Doctor Who author. So, yes, yeah, I mean, I, I, I really liked doing it at the time, and I'm still really very happy with it. Although, of course, I made a few errors, which I would, if I was doing it now, I would hopefully clear up. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Well, John, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you very much for taking time to chat to us and taking us back scarily. 31 years. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And I can still remember my feelings when I was writing it too. So um, <laughs> maybe can, time may have passed, but the experience hasn't, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, I remember buying it in Forbidden Planet in Glasgow and getting, rushing in to get it when I knew it was out, phoning up to check they had it in stock and, and got it. So happy times and places, yeah. as a great man once said. Yes, and um, I mean, I had then had the pleasure of waiting for the next books in the series. Kind of, what have they done with my time work? <laughs> so I, it was great fun for me too at the time. John, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. We'll speak again soon. Take okay. care. Okay. And so there you go. That's how a whole new era of Doctor Who began, which kept the show going through the 90s and along with Big Finish from 1999 into the mid-2000s. It's not a bad legacy to leave behind, really. And before we go today, let's have another excerpt from nearer the end of Genesis. With all the dignity he could muster, the Doctor gripped his coat lapels. I've reverted to my third incarnation, which I always thought was the best, I think. Certainly the most competent at any rate. Ace's head had stopped spinning now, and she made it fully upright at last. So, what did I miss? Just about everything, he replied. I've managed to defuse the bomb, and I'm about to erase Ishtar's mental patterns from the telepathic circuits. You put her in there? Ace was shocked. Professor, you know how much trouble we've been having with them. Nonsense, Sarah Jane. There's nothing wrong with either my memory or my ship. He patted the console lovingly. She's a good girl, which is more than I can say about some people. You managed to lose my memories in it, she pointed out. A slight miscalculation, nothing more. With a sigh, the doctor turned to the console. Look, I'll get rid of her. Jumping to Hossifat. What's wrong now? Ace asked, dreading the reply. I can't seem to find a trace of her. He bent over the readout, indexing through. She doesn't seem to be where I put her. It didn't sound good. You screwed up, he said, feeling icicles slipping down the inside of her spine. You've really done it this time. Don't be silly. I know exactly what I'm... There was a sharp burning smell, and an arc of electricity snapped at his fingers from the panel. He sucked at his fingers, staring at the instrument readings. That shouldn't have happened, he complained. I'll just... As soon as he tried to move in again, another huge spark cracked across the controls. That doesn't look good, Professor, said Ace grimly. What's going on? Probably nothing, the doctor replied, sounding far from certain about this. The old girl is just getting on in years, and probably just needs a good overhaul to set her right. There was the sound of an explosion from deep within the TARDIS and the ship shook. Struggling to keep her feet, Ace pointed as the viewer screen came to life. Ishtar's silver face smiled down at them triumphantly. Doctor! I really must thank you. This is an intriguing little device, isn't it? Swallowing, the doctor stared in horror at the central console. It looks as if I'd made a terrible blunder, he admitted. Somehow, Ishtar is still with us. A bit too literally. She's inside the TARDIS control circuitry. Remember to follow us on social media at Power of Three Pod, and that's with the number three. And we'll be back next week. Yes, next week, two weeks in a row with episodes. And keeping up with our Power of Three tradition, we like a song to play us out. And this week, it has to be something to keep one of our OG happy. So, for Tom Harris, who loves Genesis, here's a song with a character from the past. They haven't done one about Gilgamesh, to the best of my knowledge, so you can have Jesus instead. Bye bye.
Jesus 